Welcome, welcome. We are back for another episode of the Lock-In. Or are we? It's kind of weird. It's like a lock-in extra from a creepy, uh, curtained, I don't know, crawl space that we're in. Yeah, this is the new. This is the new backdrop for the for the <laughs> show from now on. We're just going to live here in the Gold Coast for the rest of our lives. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, we're, we're winding down towards the end of the trip, obviously. We, we did promise you all that we'd do another one since the last one uh, went very well. And um, speaking of going very well, David's obviously been crushing uh, his... How many caches now and how many day twos? Uh, oh, uh, yeah, good, good few bags, uh, which is nice, yeah. But uh, this is fourth, fourth cache still in the closer, which bagged up a stack last night. You're going to late regis. Um, after this so hopefully Daryl will be bagging up a stack tonight and we will have one last fling or actually the post closer 1k turbo is actually the real closer if that one goes badly which we'll have tomorrow and then we're getting on planes again so it's, we're, we yeah. are very much at the end of this and it has been a successful campaign and we're delighted to be out here um, for what does feel a bit like the end of an era I guess with the Rio and it moving to Bally's and you know I suppose our connection being very Gold Coast related in the last few years we kind of have uh, a romantic notion of these very plain ordinary spaces we occupy but it is a good spot like yeah yeah it's one of the it's it's people laugh when we say we're staying in the Gold Coast and it is obviously not one of the plusher hotels but it's (laughs) it is cheap and cheerful and the food options here are very good and it is very cheap like you can you can have a decent breakfast uh, for 10 bucks um, which is not not really a Vegas thing certainly not on the strip and yeah it just feels kind of different like it's it's away from the hoopla as well so it's it's kind it is kind of a nice place to stay for a relatively short um spell the rio on the other hand really just feels like it's literally crumbling to the ground around us um (laughs) it's so horrible out there yeah i came out of the break first at the first (laughs) break you're gonna tell that story yeah and I, I i went to the nearest bathroom and found that it was shot like just completely shot and i'm not letting anybody else in and this is the closure with a lot of runners so i went around to the other one Got in there of the of the ten urinals, uh, only four were operational, so the line was moving quite slowly. And when I when I got like second from the top of the line, there was one guy using a, a urinal, and it literally just exploded and sprayed piss everywhere, all over him from head to toe. <laughs> he was just it was like literally just. <laughs> so I was like, well, first I thought, well, what's the absolute that? fuck? It's just piss coming out. Yeah, that's what he actually shouted. What what the actual fuck? That was the first thing he shouted. I was thinking this is the first time I've actually run pretty well on the trip. If I had been in the in in the line a little bit earlier, that would have been me literally sprayed from head to toe, and and then he shouted, "This isn't even my piss." <laughs> so so um. Yeah, it was uh, so. So the rest of us then went into the remaining three urinals um, with a sort of a sense that they're all a ticking time bomb. All a ticking time bomb, and, and there's literally just just the floor is completely sprayed now in the, in the stuff. I went back there at the next break, and now all of the urinals are shut. So for oh, some, wow. for the, the toilet is open, but you can't actually do anything in it. So that um, means you have to like you walk back halfway into the hotel to get to the toilets now. Presumably, it's yeah. all falling apart. Three of Barney Bowen had a great tweet. I, I have no notes today, so I'm not. Daryl be delighted because I'll be reading off my feckin' notes as usual. But uh, it was something along the lines of you know those really rich people who uh, just sell their cars when the ashtray's full. Well, I think the Rio is basically you know finally closing because there's finally no more urinals left. Yeah, yeah, no. The whole thing is it's 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 hard to describe how symbolic it is, and like we're not moaning about this. Obviously, it, we all know it's the last World Series at the Rio, and you know it's kind of understandable they're not going to pump too much money into it. But you would you would expect some basics, like just make sure there's urinals working and stuff. <laughs> 
Um, you re- you really feel like it's just fall. The hotel is just literally crumbling yeah. around you. Um, <laughs> it has been a very strange series. There, there there has been none of the really hullabaloo of other series. Now, part of that is everyone's wearing masks, and it's kind of difficult to recognise people. Um, or, or, or socialise with them but, but part of it is just there's not the same air of excitement they haven't run as many tournaments they've had problems getting no, uh, dealers so you know uh, stuff like Daily Deep Sex often haven't run they're not really advertising the tournaments that they are running as if they don't they're afraid that too many people will show up Yeah. so yeah it's been a well speaking of people wearing masks and that sometimes making it hard to recognise people and, and you know genuinely like some people have sort of um, I don't know what like Undistinctive faces, or maybe you know whatever it would be. You had a very funny interaction last night in the closer. We were both in the money. We were both grinding through. From God, we were bare cockroaches, really, because I think we both had about six bigs in the bubble, and then we had about five bigs, you know, with eighty left. And then I think we, there was one point where we both had about four bigs, and we're the two shortest stacks. And then we both got a spin going, and then unfortunately your spin didn't continue, and I got lucky again one more time. Yeah, yeah, I, I I literally had a starting stack in five five K chips uh, on the bubble, and the guy beside me looked at me and goes, "Have you have you just late regged?" Um, Team late reg. Yeah, and, and at that point it was like three point two big blinds, I think. So it will. It, it, but then anyway, later on when I when I do have the spin and I get moved to a new table and I have more chips now, so I, I sit down at this new table and um, a gentleman at the far end of the table, an older gentleman my age in other words looks at the patch and goes oh Chip Race is that a podcast um, and I say yeah and he says oh is it a good podcast and I said no 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 not really <laughs> and he said oh well I'll check it out anyway you guys on Apple and then the guy beside me uh, who has a German accent um, during this interaction I've been just looking down at the table at this guy and um, the, the guy beside me who is German has been holding out his fist for the fist bump and I don't realise he's going for the fist bump so I just had to <laughs> usually did an Andy Wilson leave him hanging moment <laughs> yeah so so <laughs> So the guy beside me who's, who's English goes like, don't leave the poor man hanging, come on. And I was like, oh, sorry, I didn't even see. So uh, the guy asks me, oh, has anybody famous ever been on your podcast? And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, like we've had Phil Helmut and Jennifer Tilly and, that, and lots of famous people, really. I picked up on the fact now that he's German from his accent. So I tell him, okay, we've also had some like um, some Europeans, obviously, like Reiner Kempe, um, Dominic, Dominic mm-hmm. Nietzsche, etc. Yeah. And he goes, oh, what was Reiner Kempe like? And I was always oh, re- really nice guy, really funny. And, uh, and Dominic, Dominic's a really nice guy too. Like we're, we're pretty close friends with Dominic. And he goes, oh, that's nice to hear. So at this stage I'm thinking, okay, he's, he's a recreational player from Germany. Um, so I ask him where he's from. He says he's from Berlin. The interaction is a little bit weird because he's looking at me like, okay. But anyway, we have this conversation. And then time goes on, I get moved away to another table. And then later I get moved back to his, the table. And this time I'm, I'm on the other side of him. And I'm, I'm listening to him talk and I think, I'm thinking, his voice sounds very like Rainer Kempe's. Um, in fact, it sounds identical. So I'm about to say to him, you know, you actually sound very like Rainer Kempe. And then I look at him and I realize, okay, the top half of his face does look like the top half of Rainer Kempe's face if Rainer Kempe wasn't wearing glasses. Yeah, which was the bit that got me as well. And at this point, you come over to me, I was on the next table. Yeah, I come over to you at the next table and I say, sheepishly, is that Rainer Kempe sitting beside me? And you go, yeah, it is. <laughs> So I, so I go back and I tell Ryan, okay, Ryan, I figured out who you are, who you are. That makes the early, earlier interaction really weird. And he said, to be honest, I thought you were trolling me. <laughs> I thought you knew who I was all the time and you, and you were just trolling me. So yeah, it was, it was, it's been that kind of series. Like people come up to me all the time and I don't know whether I know them or not. Voices are, are is the main way I'm distinguishing people now. I, I, I've met Sam Razavi before and 
the voice. It's like a very, very distinctive voice. Mm-hmm. Similar to Reiner. Reiner has a very distinctive voice too. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's the kind of series it's been. We're sort of operating by by the, the, the sense of sound rather than <laughs> vision. It's been great fun. I have to say, I have really enjoyed it. Uh, and there's been a bit of socialising off the tables as well. We had a couple of days off, which, you know, we don't really plan to have any days off. I know we both sort of approach it as a work trip and sort of think, well, if you can kind of play every day, just play every day. And I suppose the way it's worked out with like bag and stacks and different things where there was gap days, there was the option to run across to the Venetian or the Wynn or something for a one day. But really, I think given those little openings, we've just decided to go, well, let's just like do a bit of media, do an interview. You've done a couple of interviews. I did one this morning. Uh, I did a bit of writing as well. So we've, we've managed to kind of, you know, use the time that way, which I suppose has meant that it hasn't been so relentless on the playing side because some of the days have been really long. So having these days has actually been kind of nice. Yeah, it's been very long for you because I think uh, apart from the, the day we both had off between day two and day three of the main, you've pretty much been playing every day, but you did get the day off because you managed to bag last night. I was kind of sad when I, at the end when I bust, not because, um, you know, I bust as such, but it was I, I, I was so close to bagging and bagging up a day off essentially, but now, yeah. now I felt obliged to go again in the, in the, in the closer. Um, it's really kind of weird that you can like go relatively deep into a tournament, like I cash for 5k, but still be out and re-entering it the next day. Yeah, um, yeah. I actually really like that structure too, I have to say, that they basically play down to about 3% of the field. Yeah. Now, they do it by levels, but that's roughly the number who will get through. But it's great because the bubble bursts and then you play for like two more hours. There's that post-bubble bonanza where everyone fucking busts. And then it kind of keeps busting quite consistently for another hour and a half after that uh, to the point where, you know, 12% of the, or like 12% of the field, so like three quarters, four fifths of the people who actually made the money cashed like they actually bust and got their cash collected at the cage and then thought oh sure may as well flick it in again yeah absolutely we had to talk about this actually at one of my tables yesterday about how the series has changed over the years when I started coming the 1k is uh, you started with 3,000 chips and you wow. were, there was only 4 hours of late reg and if you late regged, uh, you were coming at big, in, in a big blind 400 so you, you were coming in with literally 7.5 big blinds and one thing that, me- that meant that by dinner break, um, you had generally lost 60% of the field and the bubble then would go later on day one. Now, what they've done is they've given way more chips at the start, but then there's far less play at the finish. So essentially, yeah. it's, it's, it's reversed. It used to be that it, it actually was quite fast and meaningful from, right from the beginning. Yeah. And you would bust early a lot. Um, our good friend Jason Tompkins, I think, had on his first ever Vegas trip I think he might not have made a single dinner break but, yeah. that, but that was perfectly possible because as I said 60-70% to 70% of the field were gone by then um, now it's very difficult to bust super early um, because you know even the, the cheaper blinds you're starting typically with 250 big blinds but it does mean that when you get to the business end you know what, what was the average last night David after the bubble burst when the bubble burst there was about a 19 big blind average oh wow our lighting situation just changed it. it's a bit of drama um, but yeah our, uh, I think we had about 19 18 19 bigs when the bubble burst and then it did stretch out because the quick bust outs happened and I think maybe the average stack is 23 24 bigs there's going to try and fix the light here if it's possible hang on can we do this can we do this will we have to start again okay hang on here's what we're going to do we're going to fade out in a very seamless way and then fade back in with a new video how about that and, and we might have a light for that one we might we well are you, are you might be just looking or, at us in the or, dark or maybe not fade out 
Fade in, fade in, fade in. Yeah, we're back, we're back. We fixed the light. Um, we also managed to record this in two bits so we could send it all the way across the Atlantic yeah, to our fabulous editing suite. The carrier pigeon can only carry a certain amount. So. <laughs> That's it. Uh, so what we want to talk about now, uh, because we were kind of conscious this is a, a slightly modified version of the show, we do want to cover things that have been going on. And I'm sure a lot of you guys have been following the WSOP, not just for us, although mostly hopefully for us, but you've been following the thing in general because it has been the talk of the town as it always is when it uh, you know comes around. And uh, the main event final table, I suppose, is really the centerpiece of everything. It was a kind of perfect final table in that it had a sort of a you know your classic archetypal you know online live hybrid beast mm. you know front runner high roller in Correa Aldemir who came in with the chip lead and went wire to wire he's a phenomenal talent I think he's going to be amazing for the game and then across the final table you had a host of characters as well some recreational players in there uh, Lacoco, the uh, Argentinian rapper uh, played probably the most talked about hand of the entire final table and then of course the last hand uh, of it if you were watching between Holmes and Aldemir was a, an extraordinary hand actually and well worth discussion actually well worth maybe analysis and we might figure out a way to turn that into a strategy segment at some point but we're going to do it briefly now maybe maybe talk about the final table first thing i want to say is i'm a fan first and i was watching the live stream for the days leading up to it i was enjoying the build-up i was enjoying the regular mentions of us on the stream thank you jamie norman lon for all those shout outs and um yeah, I just I, I I really enjoy watching it. I think they're a really great team. I think they they know what works for the mainstream audience, and I, I think they did that fantastically well. And then when it came to final table time, I thought Jamie's analysis uh, on some of the hands was really good in game, which is never easy when you're doing it live. Uh, but we're going to take a deeper dive into those hands, and the first one is Lacoco's hand. Now you might remember that it was uh, tens versus nines. Lacoco opened. Aldemir three bets the nines. Uh, Lacoco calls. He's second in chips. Now they're kind of bunched together again. Uh, Aldemir had the big chip lead and then those kind of like second through fifth were kind of all similar-ish. But Lukaku was technically in second and obviously when you're in second you're really conscious of like, like maybe trying to get into the top three. ICM pressure is enormous on you so the minute he gets into a hand with Aldemir he's got already kind of feeling oh there's like a premium on the hand that I need to continue with on every street here uh, it can't just be like a normal cash game hand far from it Dara's obviously the master time for the book plug this is the kind of book that you need if you want to make better decisions in exactly the kind of spot Lacoco found himself so I'll give you a little rundown of the action and then maybe you can take it from the post flop sure. so as I said uh, he raises up the 10s, perfectly fine. Aldemir three bets the nines, I like it. He calls with the 10s, I like it, because if he basically puts more chips into the pot here and Aldemir goes with it, he has to fold his 10s. He destroys any set mining value or board mining or navigational chance he has, which, you know, is still a pretty premium hand 10s, but a very tricky one to navigate. Board comes down, jack, jack, nine. So tens are probably feeling okay about their hand. However, Aldemir has flopped a boat, so it's pretty bad news for Lukaku here. And take it from there, Dara. Yeah, well, preflop is interesting for, first because obviously some people will think, well, why don't we four bet uh, the tens against a very aggro player? But you know, you really you can't really do that. As you said, you can't stack off. Essentially, you are mostly set mining. You can't you can't really fold because if you fold, you're, you're kind of just folding everything. Um, so you, you, you do have to call, but for the most part, like if the board comes ace high or king high and um, Aldemir starts putting chips into the pot, you're gone. 
uh, unfortunately he doesn't get one of those boards he gets the jack jack nine board which is not really a board he can give up straight away first of all we can see two of the jacks so it's very unlikely that uh, Aldemir has has a jack um, and you know a lot of the time he just has two over cards he has maybe one over card ace x and he just has all sorts of um, you know nonsense hands that he's three bet as well taking advantage of the ICM situation so definitely our hand is mostly good and there, and there is one other crucial factor about the hand as well like given that we're worried about jacks primarily and to a lesser extent uh, nines our 10 blocker is actually quite useful on this board because we're blocking jack 10 and 10 9 um, the other thing is we do kind of have some knotted type equity in the sense that we can we can hit uh, hit a straight by the river and generally in these spots you know the tens is actually a better continue than let's say kings um, because kings will never make a strong enough hand unless it pings a king along the way that we, we can call three big streets um, but tens could potentially you know the board could run at eight seven and now we decide although in this case it would obviously be a disaster we do have a straight so t so tens is a perfectly reasonable continue on the flop for sure i think he absolutely has to continue yeah so he does face a, a continuation bet uh Aldemir, remember has the pre-flop aggression he's the only three bet and he calls and that's perfectly fine no complaints now he's got to be sticky at this point in the hand turn i can't remember but it was pretty bricky um, and so nothing really changes. No, I think, did he not pick up a straight draw on the turn? You're right. He did pick it, up a straight draw. It was an eight. It was an eight. Yeah. Sorry. So now he's open-ended as yeah. well. Sorry, it is relevant because uh, Aldemir fires again. And now, as you said, with the tens, he's now got the four card straight working yeah. firm. He can hit a hand that he'd be very, now we know it would be disaster if he hit it. But, it, you know, you'd be pretty happy with this hand against Aldemir's range if you were to make your straight. You could ping your 10. Um, you know, another jack comes and you're probably going to have to get sticky sometimes too. So it's, you know, there's a lot of go stuff going on here. Um, anyway, he does call another bet. And again, on the turn, I think he kind of has to. Like, it, it is setting up sort of a close to one-to-one. I think it was like maybe a 1.2 to 1 stack to pot ratio for the river. But Aldemir's probably going to be conscious now of like, oh, I could be up against a jack. I could be up. So like he's finding out the strength of his opponent's range by making these bets. These bets are essentially uh, both value bets, but they're also figuring out what sort of range uh, his opponent has. Like Koku's sticking around over two streets. In a lot of worlds, he's not going to be able to stick around over two streets. So he's probably feeling like he's got some value and maybe he can find some calls. We get to the river. The river is a brick now. That that that's for sure. Yeah, the fact the fact that the turn isn't a brick is very significant because I think on a brick turn we do, even though it sucks, we have to check fold um, because now we don't have a hand that can make super strong hand on the river. Um, so uh, yeah, if, if the turn had been a two or a three, I think check fold is the play. Um, unfortunately, we're away from home, so I'm not able to run the solve, but I'm feel reasonably confident that the solver, given the ICM pressure, would check fold most turns. But unfortunately, the eight. The queen would be similar. Yeah. Anything which makes us open-ended, we can't really. Um, so we do just kind of have to hang on. But I think, uh, and I think this is a crucial point. When we hang on, we're hoping to either improve on the river, or we're we're essentially we're essentially drawing to improve or drawing to a check. Yeah, we're we're hoping that he gives up in a lot of worlds where we've been sticky as much as we can be sticky, and now we kind of think, well, we're protected by our better sticky stuff as well. So hopefully, Aldemir won't go too crazy and exploit us too hard there. Um, so it gets to the river, and, and and this is an interesting spot because I remember we both became aware of this hand because Maria Konnikova, who was sitting in the tournament with us, uh, pinged us and said, did you see this hand? It obviously just happened. It had just gone up on the reports. And we both exactly turned to each other and went, looks good till the turn. 
uh-oh, that's an awful River decision. Really crucially, what happened here was River does come down the blank. Uh, Lukaku is faced with an all-in for, I think, like 1.1x pot. So very significant pot. Again, remember, if he folds in this situation, I think he's still going to be in like third or fourth place. So it's not a complete disaster in the context of the rest of the tournament for him. He can still in. He took about 30 seconds, not even, maybe 20 seconds, and just plunked in the chips. It was like he'd made his read that Aldemir was at it from the start and just thought, I'm not going to get run over by this guy. He justified it retrospectively as saying, well, there was part of me that thought, well, if he was going to try and run me over, which I thought he would, I was going to catch him speeding, and then I was going to be the chip leader, and then I was going to poon everyone with the ICM pressure. But the problem with that logic is... When you're wrong, and he was wrong in this instance, it's an absolute catastrophe. It is a nightmare scenario. From an ICM point of view, he probably started that hand with like 2.83 million in equity and he bust for what, like 1.3. Mm. It's, like it, it's like, imagine just having a million books, a more than a million books in your hand and just like throwing a match on it. Because that's what kind of happened. Yeah, when we look at the river decision, we can come at it from two angles. First is the, the, the purely sort of mathematical perspective of how much does ICM affect things. And ICM affects things a lot. Um, instead of the, the 40% equity we need to call based on the pot odds, or uh, actually, no, it was less. I think it was 36%. We actually need to be good half the time. It needs to be 50%. Now, you could argue that maybe he is good 50% of the time. If Aldemir is over bluffing, it's definitely possible. If he's just going to bluff everything and try and use the ICM pressure, then yes, for sure, um, you can be, you can be good half the time, and that would actually make the call correct, even though you know you're taking a high risk in this spot. On the other hand, if Aldemir is, is anyway balanced, um, it, it's not. And the problem specifically with tens is that we're blocking a lot of the bluffs. If um, Aldemir is playing sort of close to GTO, he he would bluff a ten on the turn, you know. Um, something like AS10 once he becomes open-ended yeah. um, and then when he gets to the river and, and, and he only has AS high he should pile it in um, recognising that his hand isn't going to be good but because we have two of the 10s we're blocking two of the obvious bluffs so that, that that's kind of an issue in itself so he, that's the point number one he has to be good half the time and it really comes down to whether you believe he's good half the time or not um, if you believe that, he, that, the, that he's good more than half the time then yeah the call is fine but the second point is prob- is maybe the more interesting point, and it's the other factors at play. If he if he falls, um, yes, he's still third or fourth in chips, but Aldemir now has a massive chip lead, uh, completely overwhelming chip lead, and he can basically continue to pound the bubble, and or not the bubble, but pound the pound the final table. He's almost certainly going to win. Everybody else is going to be playing for second, and they're just going to be in miserable spot after miserable spot. Um, on the other hand, if he calls, he's going to be the chip leader and he's going to be the guy who gets to do that and it's going to give him a great chance to win. So this is basically like his shot, his best shot at winning the tournament. Um, he's either going to have a great shot at winning the tournament or it's going to be out. Whereas the other way, he's going to probably come third, fourth or fifth in most worlds. Um, so he, I think he just decided to go for it. This is, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity to win the main event. I don't know how significant the money is to him. Um, He's, he is sponsored by Poker Stars. He's apparently a very successful rapper in his home country. So it's also possible that he, you know, even if he knew, even if you said to him, you're, giving, you're losing two or 300,000 with this call, he would say, I'll take it, just for the better chance of the once in a lifetime opportunity of becoming WSP main event champion. So you kind of got to admire the, the, the bravery as well. 
Um, it's all very well to say, oh yeah, from a mathematical point of view, he's supposed to fold, but um, you know, if you keep folding in those spots, you are gonna get run over. Yeah, well, look guys, hopefully you enjoyed that analysis. I'm gonna do one of those fade down, fade up again things, because again, I'm noticing our little segment's gone run long. So uh, we are gonna cover when the uh, fade up comes back, uh, the very last hand. Looking forward to it. Me too. Okay, guys, so now we're going to talk about the final hand, the one that had everybody talking about it, really. It was an exciting hand. It was uh, sort of an unexpected hand to see because I guess a lot of people would have felt that Correa Aldemir up against the amateur homes, home game player here in the US would have been looking to sort of small ball and would have been looking to not put himself in a guessing game and just kind of have his fundamentals shine through. On the other hand, Holmes was very good at bloating pots and making everything kind of uncomfortable and pretty much gave himself his best chance uh, with the kind of a, a skill deficit there, I thought, to actually ramp up variance and give himself every chance. I think we saw that three-handed as well against Jack when he was willing to stick 10 Jack suited in for a four-bet shove pre. He kind of thought, well, if I have a hand with good equity, I'm really willing to kind of gamble it up here it's probably my best chance against the two pros and then obviously heads up against the really high profile high stakes pro in in Korea. um hand begins and i'm really interested to get Darius analysis on this one is uh holmes raises it up he's got the king queen off suit and Correa defends with the 10-7 of diamonds. Uh, the raise was 2.5x at big blind, 2.4 million. So it was a 6 million and a call. There's an ante in there as well. Pot is 14.4 million and the flop comes the 10 of hearts, 7 of spades, 2 of hearts. So very favourable for Correa who has flopped top two pair. Can't be, can't be too greedy heads up. That's pretty much as good as it gets. And obviously Holmes there with just king high. He gets checked to and he does fire out a C-bet. I don't think there's anything wrong with that with the King-Queen. Seems pretty good. Fire out a C-bet. Let's see if we can take it down here. And obviously, it's a dynamical board that could change. He could pick up a jack or a nine. He could make a pair. So there's there's ways in which he could be very happy to continue with some betting lines. Um, but Correa, obviously, you know, recognising, oh, this is a spot to get more money in the pot now with my top two. He raises it up. He makes it 19 million to go. And Holmes goes for a questionable float. It's got to be said, King High here, not great. Obviously, he's got the 10 working for him a little bit. Like we said, there was some backdoor ways to make good hands, but really King-Queen, probably not the greatest choice of hand. Yeah, I don't think it is the greatest choice of hand. Um, even if we hit our King or Queen, we might be in trouble, as we know, actually, we will be in this spot. We do have two very specific boards. It can come Queen, Queen, Queen Jack. No, sorry, Jack-9 or Jack-Ace. Uh, to make us a straight but th th like that's very very specific that's not really enough additional robust equity I think we should just get out now at this point and recognise that um, you know even, even if Correa has a bluff and there are a lot of bluffs available on this you know gut shots and 8-9 is open ended he's going to keep firing and we're not going to be comfortable calling down with King Queen and even as I said when we improve we're not going to be sure that we're good so mm. this part this feels like the point where we should the hand should probably be over I would agree. And I think probably part and parcel of the downside of what I described there when I said that Holmes was keen to blow pots was he was kind of get into these happy to get into these like murky situations where maybe you know Correa raised with a 10 he calls then he might bink his king or queen and now Correa's in a kind of a weird spot and he can continue to blow pots and put Correa in a guessing game well 
it is what happened, but it wasn't what he really wanted to happen because we know that Correa obviously has two pair here. They go to the uh, to the flop and uh, sorry, they go to the turn um, again. A reminder: the flop is ten of hearts, seven of spades, two of hearts. Uh, it comes a king. So now Holmes does make a uh, top pair. It comes the king of spades, so there's two flush draws on board now. There was hearts on the flop with one spade and now another spade means there's a double flush draw. Kind of significant, I think, really, because it, it does sort of present what would be backdoor opportunities that people might keep playing the hand with. And obviously there's a front door flush draw and there's a straight draw. And as you said, the good shots and different things there as well. So there is stuff to be considering. Uh, as played, uh, Correa decides that, well, he's going to continue his story. He's still very happy. It's not top two anymore, but it's second and third pair. It's pretty good ads up. And he fires 36.5 million into a pot of about 52 million. Uh, I like the sizing. Two thirds, three quarters, kind of, you know, it's a meaningful bet. It's putting a lot more chips in the pot and it's putting pressure on George, who's now continued. If he's continued with draws, he's going to charge those draws, basically. Um now we have a an interesting spot here where, uh, and I don't think, I think it's okay to move to the river because that is a pretty uncontroversial one given the fact that he's floated and he's made top pair. Obviously, yeah. Holmes is going nowhere. But we have a very big pot now. We have a pot of about 125 million and that's nearly one-to-one. I think Holmes was the effective stack with 133 million. So it's almost his stack. And Correa only had a couple of big blinds more. They were almost level at this point in the tournament. So uh, the river comes the nine of clubs. So it sort of bricks out, I guess. Uh, Probably unlikely that anyone's in there with like the jack eight or the eight six. I think they'd have been cleared out in... Hmm? Or the queen jack. Or the Queen Jack, sorry, as well. Queen yeah, it's just about possible because if, if maybe if, yeah. if, um, if 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 George is going to continue with King Queen, he's pro- he's almost certainly continuing with Queen Jack, which in many ways is a better hand than than King Queen in the spot. Yeah, it's a bit more wrapped around the ten, and I suppose maybe had had a, a few more ways to, to kind of get there by the river. But anyway, as played, uh, Correa now decides to put the brakes on. I guess there's a, kind of a, a couple of functions to him checking here. He's ended up obviously not with top two pair anymore. He's ended up with second and fourth pair, which is still very nice. Um, but uh, the draws have missed or most of the draws have missed you know yes there are some potentially you know uh, gremlins out there and George is definitely the kind of man who might have those hands but at the same time he probably wants to look to bluff catch Uh, if he bets and gets raised he probably has to fold his 10-7 oh that's a really weird kind of spot to put yourself in but I think he just felt like well if I check you know I'll probably just end up calling a, a bet and most of the bets on this thing might be yeah, I think, 40%. I think it's a very mandatory check to be honest um, particularly against somebody like George who's going to bluff a lot mm. it's just when you check he, he's going to put chips in with all his bluffs and therefore you just get more whereas you know if you if you bet yourself um, he's not going to bluff as much um, you're not going to get called by the bluffs uh, so you're going to lose money so it's, it's a it seems like a very profitable bluff catch um, I wouldn't be completely thrilled about it because I definitely think George could have had Queen Jack I even think he could have had Jack 8 I don't think he would give up Jack 8 on the flop either yeah um, so I think he probably has far more of those types of hands um, 8-6 as well mm. than, than other players um, but th- but the general point is that like if you're not going to fold the river anyway yourself you're better off checking 
to get his weaker hands to bluff um, rather than just taking that opportunity away from him. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think the check is, is, is normal, but it's, but you're not going to love it uh, if, if, you, if you face a jam. Yeah, and a jam is exactly what he faced. George overvaluing his king-queen in this spot and really not targeting the right kind of hands to get called uh, by inferior. Like, I guess he's basically hoping that Cray has, what, like ace-10? That he didn't three-bet pre, which seems unlikely, to be honest. So he's targeting sort of like 10x hands that have taken this raising line which you know wouldn't necessarily be all of them by any means a lot of them would take more passive lines so you know rather than sort of targeting that type of hand and going for a quarter pot a third pot something nice like that maybe 40 million and you know having a big chip lead if, if, he, if he gets caught he decides this is the moment to really pull the trigger overvaluing his hand I fear some people are talking about it is potentially being a bluff there's no way in my mind he thought he was bluffing I think he thought he had the best hand he thought his float had worked out really nicely as a kind of a deception and he went with us and and Correa's now in a horrible spot, as you mentioned, like 1.1x pot, 133 million into 125 million. Correa's got to be right a lot of the time. He's got to be able to work out, well, will George be overvaluing a king in this spot? How many bluffs does George have versus how many value hands might he have that overtook me? Maybe he had king 10, maybe he had king 7, and this is a problem too. So Correa basically took a good amount of time, and I think the more time he took, the more George probably felt like his hand was good, yeah. and then George was probably giving off quite happy information, which makes Correa's decision even tougher again, because he's looking at a man who seems to be pretty happy with life. So, you know, in the end, I think like game theory will certainly suggest that he has to go with this 10-7 here. But it's, as you said, not one you love, not a slam dunk, and not the kind of spot you want to have gotten into with the amateur. You didn't want to have to basically make a really big guess at the end. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you're supposed to be only beating a bluff here, but but the muddy, the water is, is always muddied against um, amateurs and recreations, particularly Americans, who as in this case appear to be overvaluing a hand um, not really thinking about what what Correa's range is and what he's going to, what he's going to potentially call with just thinking well I have top pair and top pair is a monster um, heads up which is which which is true but not in this situation another tendency that I, that I've noticed a lot in the two weeks that we've been here is that as soon as you check they just assume that they, they just don't think you ever ch protect checking ranges that you that you check strong hands. They think maybe you'll slow play a monster, but then it would have happened on the flop. Yeah. But when you get to the river after betting two streets, they pretty much always just assume you were bluffing the whole way, and um, and and they do that themselves. Like they the, the, once they have the betting lead, they want to keep betting, so they'll bet like third, fourth pair, um, and then they get to the river and they're like, "Oh, the pot's a bit big now," so they check. So I think that's probably what George's thought process was here. Um, Correa is obviously in a, in a horrible spot. From a game theory perspective, I don't think there's any debate here. This is a slam dunk call. Mm. Two pair is a monster heads up. The fact that it ends up being second and fourth pair is neither here nor there because um, he had top two on the flop and that's the point where he he, he made the aggressive move. You mentioned king 10, king seven. Well, that, uh, that actually brings up the point that in terms of blockers, this is a much better hand to call with than pocket twos. Um, because we're blocking the, the 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 strong hands that he's that he's representing, we're not blocking any of the missed draws. Um, we so in terms we 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 block value, we unblock uh, bluffs. Um, we're playing as somebody who is very aggro, who will bluff and who will also overvalue hands. So I think Correa decided in the end just look, my hand is far too strong. If he has it, he has it. 
you can try and play this small tippy-toppy game with the amateurs and I've done it a few times myself and it's blown up in my face it, where they just keep piling the chips in and you and you end up folding and then you just whittle down mm. um, that's not you don't want to take that small ball strategy too far and I think Correa would have been doing that if, he, if he'd folded two pair here yeah, you can just give away the equity and then seed all the, you know, the whole point is that, you know, you, you're the pro and you're going to have these little edges in every spot. But if you concede the edges back in these bigger pots, well, then, you know, you've basically leveled the playing field and given the guy a best chance. Wonderful for Correa Aldemir. Obviously, that, you know, in some people's minds is back-to-back wins in this tournament for the Germans. Uh, we had Hussein Ensan on our last show. Check it out. Last episode of the Chip Race is a real good one. And Hussein gave us a lovely interview which just, like, sort of exuded enthusiasm and his infectious sort of uh, quality for the game. He, he's, a, uh, he's a wonderful ambassador for the game. He is now passing the torch to his countryman, Correa Aldemir, part of the younger generation, part of the, the, the sort of... Um, uh, high rollers that probably you know came about from about 10 years ago or so I think Correa might be 28, 29 years of age so you know I think he's going to be a wonderful ambassador polite lovely guy lovely to talk to and I think he's going to be great obviously I'm, I'm sort of skipping the, I'm saying he's passing the torch but Damian Salas was in there and of course Stoyan um, uh, from Bulgaria who, who won the, the online one that everyone thought was the one and then it turned out not to be the one but that all sort of is what I'm trying to get to here is that sort of four main event winners in a row let's put them all in the same hat that don't come from the US of A are we seeing because the US of A dominate these fields you sit down and it is like 80% 85% Americans and yes when it gets down to the business end in a lot of these tournaments particularly since the, the gates went back up and people could come in here a lot more Russian lads uh, Scandi lads, uh, UK guys are making deep runs and are there in uh, at the business end. French guys as well. French are having a great series too. So it questions, you know, I, I know the obvious foreigner sort of jokes aside and maybe the lads are taking a few extra seconds over the decisions on average. But it does feel like it's moved away from America. It's obviously a great American game. More Americans play it than anyone else. We'd love to have them back in the player pool uh, globally. But it does feel like there is a now quite an obvious standard gap and I just thought maybe would you give your opinion on that as politely as possible because I'm sure we have some American guests about you know maybe what they could do to combat that and also you know am I overstating it or not yeah I think that, that I mean I started expressing this view years ago it became obvious to me say five years ago which was five years after Black Friday that the Americans essentially were on a different evolutionary track where they don't have enough online exposure to online poker now that's changing and more and more states are allowing it um, nevertheless there is a there is a fairly skill, big skill gap and I don't think it's controversial anymore um, this this opinion has been expressed several times at tables I've been at and no American has ever argued back against no, it no they don't I noticed that this year too when this subject comes up they're just like oh these bloody euros how many euros that they're, they actually it's gone the other way it used to be like oh send me more euros I want to, I want to pilfer off the euros now they're worried now they're like oh is that a French accent is that a German accent yeah now part of it is obviously when people travel for a tournament they're going to be better than the average I mean there's no doubt that there's still an incredible number of the top players that are American um, and you know oh, yeah. we, we, 
we played with some some of the top Americans like Chance Carnuth um, that I played with in the main event and those guys are all absolutely top notch it's just that the general standard is lower let's say and mm. they make up more of the field um, because it's because the tournament is in America I think you you would probably see the opposite in, in Europe the the Americans who would travel for an EPT or something are going to be way above average That's a great and they're, point. Going be, they're going to be better than the locals as well so I don't think it's necessarily just an America versus uh, Europe thing it's also just a sort of a foreigner who has gone to the trouble of traveling to play this tournament versus local uh, thing um, I do think the American standards are rising I think more and more American recreationals are putting time into studying the game and um, on understanding the concept there's a lot of great content out there um, which which they're now accessing and they kind of realize that they do have to study to catch up I think so I think we're probably going to see uh, a, a coming together of the standards again um, in the next few years for two factors first of all just more content out there for american recreational players to consume and secondly more exposure to online poker um even the states that don't have online poker there are apps that people are playing on there are there are unregulated sites that they're playing on so i don't think the gap is going to get wider for sure and i think it's probably going to come together it's mostly a question of their they're they're playing in a style which would have been a good a decent winning style six or seven years ago but but isn't anymore they're very unbalanced in certain spots I think even the final hand was almost um, a representation of that, where yeah. we saw the sort of flaws, for want of a better word, in the American recre recreational thinking, which um, which ended up costing him the main event. He was probably going to lose anyway, but um, it, it was a sort of graphic illustration of how they overvalue certain hands, how they're just overly aggressive in certain spots, how they they, they generally just won't give up to the first aggressive action. Um, I actually have a rule that I call the, the, the law of second aggression, which is that usually the second aggressive act uh, gets more folds than it should because they just don't fold enough to the first aggressive act. Mm. When we went through the hand, we both said he should just fold when he gets check raised. Um, but, you know, I don't remember the last time I check raised an American recreational and they just folded. <laughs> Indeed. Well, I think a great way of describing it there. Thank you very much for doing that, Dara. I'm sure our listeners appreciate it too. Finally, piss spraying out of your rhinos to one side... I'm going to miss the Rio. I'm going to miss aspects of the World Series as it is right now. Obviously, they might make it bigger and better and greater than ever in Bally's, and we hope they do. But there is nonetheless a kind of a nostalgic thing about, you know, the summer camp sure. you've known all these years. And you know, even worse and all, I think there are aspects of the World Series and the Rio, while we will continue to be you know, ardent critics of things that we don't think are right. And we will continue to give our two cents on that kind of stuff. I think overall, what is lovely to see is that there is a sort of a nostalgia among the people who are still here kind of going like, oh, this will be the last one. I hope they do it well next year. We'll be back in the summer. Actually, the one thing I would say is it's been nice being here in the autumn, not having to go out into like sauna, 110 degrees is good. But um, but yeah, look, on that note, I just want to say, I guess this is, we won't be doing another one of these. There's only two days left. We're getting on a plane in two days. So uh, thank you so much for all the messages of support for Dara and I through our tournaments, all the social media interaction. We've been loving it. It's been keeping us going. Um, and it, it does genuinely fuel both our show and our desire to make content and uh, you know gives you a little lift in the morning when you're going back for your uh, you know yet another bullet in whatever tournament we've been in so uh, we really appreciate that and thank you very much signing off from our now I guess two part WSOP 2021 thank you Daryl Kearney thank you and we'll all be back here in Vegas in a few months <laughs> yeah six months and we're back take care guys good luck guys <laughs>